If you have a Bible, can I encourage you to open it to the book of Ruth and the third chapter? Ruth is the eighth book in the Bible, so as you're proceeding through from the Old Testament, um, you arrive at the longer books of Joshua, then Judges, and then Ruth is just a few pages long after the book of Judges, so you'll find it there. I want to read to you the whole chapter, the third chapter, again as we did last week, which um, is a story of the kind of courtship, the very brief, the briefest of brief courtships um, between Ruth and Boaz. And recall, uh, for those of you perhaps who were not here, let me just recap what has happened. Uh, It is a story of these two women, Naomi and Ruth, who are both widows, uh, mother-in-law, daughter-in-law, who've experienced the tragedy of their husbands passing away uh, far too soon, then find themselves economically destitute and without, uh, really, without possessions and without livelihood, and who then effectively engage in a kind of... um, an ancient version of, of, of begging, which is called gleaning, where they could gather up grain from fields uh, that was left behind by the harvesters. And uh, it was a legal practice. There were laws carved out for, the, for, for people who were in desperate need. So Ruth, this young, the younger woman, goes out to glean. She finds herself gleaning in the field of a man named Boaz, who is a, a distant relative and also a godly man and a righteous man. And uh, he makes ample provision for them, uh, knowing their plight. He makes sure that the harvesters leave, surreptitiously leave behind bunches of, of uh, the barley harvest behind them as they're going so that Ruth comes home with sacks and sacks and sacks of the stuff. And the mother-in-law is utterly aghast. And this proceeds for the du- duration of the harvest. And meanwhile, the mother-in-law is meditating on this potential. Here is her daughter-in-law, a widow like herself, in the field of a godly man who is also a single man. And this is where we pick up the story in Ruth chapter 3. It says, Then Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, said to Ruth, My daughter, should I not seek rest for you, that it may be well with you? Is not Boaz our relative with whose young women you were? See, He is winnowing barley tonight at the threshing floor. Wash, therefore, and anoint yourself, and put on your cloak, and go down to the threshing floor. But do not make yourself known to the man until he has finished eating and drinking. But when he lies down, observe the place where he lies. Then go and uncover his feet and lie down, and he'll tell you what to do. And she replied, all that you say, I will do. So she went down to the threshing floor and did just as her mother-in-law had commanded her. And when Boaz had eaten and drunk and his heart was merry, he went to lie down at the end of the heap of grain. Then she came softly and uncovered his feet and lay down. At midnight, the man was startled and turned over and behold, a woman lay at his feet. He said, who are you? And she answered, I am Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over your servant for you are a redeemer. And he said, may you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter. You have made this last kindness greater than the first in that you have not gone after young men, whether poor or rich. And now, my daughter, do not fear. I will do for you all that you ask. For all my fellow townsmen know that you are a worthy woman. And now it is true that I am a redeemer. Yet there is a redeemer nearer than I. Remain tonight, and in the morning, if he will redeem you good, let him do it. But if he is not willing to redeem you, then as the Lord lives, I will redeem you. Lie down until the morning. 
So she lay at his feet until the morning, but arose before one could recognize another. And he said, let it not be known that the woman came to the threshing floor. And he said, bring the garment that you are wearing and hold it out. And so she held it out and he measured out six measures of barley and put it on her. Then she went into the city. And when she came to her mother-in-law, she said, how did you fare, my daughter? And she told her all that the man had done for her, saying, These six measures of barley he gave to me, for he said to me, You must not go back empty-handed to your mother-in-law. And she replied, Wait, my daughter, until you learn how the matter turns out, for the man will not rest, but will settle the matter today. So here we have the story of the most bizarre uh, romance and courtship that you'll ever read of, as far as I can tell. Uh, and all this strange language of rede- redemption of, of Boaz's relationship to Ruth as a possible redeemer, which I'll attempt to explain to you uh, later on. But effectively what this is is a kind of courtship in which Ruth makes, an, a, makes herself um, available to Boaz as a potential spouse, and he essentially says yes. Now, I want you to understand at the outset that this book gives to us the highest possible view of marital love and its impact and potential within the lives of individuals. And I don't just mean that in the way that we might typically think in our day and age. We very often think about marriage as a possible lifestyle choice. If it's good for you, then great, and if not, then fine. And we just think of it among the many options that people choose these days uh, within the potential um, course of their life. But rather, in the book of Ruth, what we're seeing is something slightly more profound, something more spiritual, um, something more life-changing, I would say, and that there is a, a saving and redeeming element to marriage in the book of Ruth. Now, what do I mean when I use the language of salvation and redemption here uh, when we're speaking about this idea of marriage? And I don't mean it, of course, in the spiritual sense in which that language is used in the New Testament to speak of our eternal salvation and redemption by the Lord Jesus Christ, our great husband who marries his bride, the church. But you have to understand that all of that notion that is there in the New Testament finds its roots in historical realities like this. And therefore, what I'm speaking about when I use the language of salvation and redemption that's taking place within the lives of these individuals and how marriage is for their good, I mean this in a couple of ways. I'm speaking about the inbuilt potential within marriage when marriage is God-centered to be of extraordinary blessing to you and then to the world. And you can think of that on those two levels. You can think, first of all, in the way in which marriage can be profoundly good for you. It's good in the sense that it brings this security. And you see this in Ruth's life, how it brings a security and a wholeness and a healing. Doesn't the mother-in-law say that I want to seek rest for you, that it may be well with you? And she means that there is a sense of incompleteness in Ruth's life now that she has lost her husband prematurely and now that she is, in a sense, living at the margins of society with outside of the safety of a household with the protection of a godly husband. And Naomi wants her to find that again. So there's a sense in which marriage is good for you. And you can see this being underlined. You know, when Ruth first met Boaz and Boaz is kind to her in the second chapter, He sort of speaks a blessing over her. He says, The Lord repay you for what you've done, and a full reward be given you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. So Boaz, I don't know whether he was 
giving some kind of surreptitious proposal here, a kind of offer, a signal of his interest. But certainly what he's doing is he sees this worthy young woman, he's blessing her in God's name. May God, may you come under the wings of the God of Israel. She's a foreign woman. He's saying, come under the protection of the living God. And then Ruth takes up the same language, doesn't she? When she comes to him in this strange way, uncovers his feet, he wakes up startled, he sees her there, he asks, who are you? She says, I'm Ruth, your servant. And then she says in chapter 3, verse 9, spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. I want you to see the connection there. Boaz is asking that God's blessing will come upon her. She comes under the wings of protection of the living God. And Ruth then uses the same language to say, I want to come under your wings, Boaz. In other words, Boaz can become the fulfillment of the very blessing which he's spoken over her. And it shows you the profound way in which the grace of God can be communicated to us or transmitted to us through the experience of marriage. I'm not saying it's the only way, of course, but I'm saying it is a way in which the grace of God can be communicated to you so that you can experience the goodness of God in profound ways for security, for wholeness, for healing, for transformation of your life. And marriage is a gift from God that it may accomplish those things in your life. It's good for you, but it's good also in the sense that this marriage has impacts that ripple out way beyond this couple. And I'm slightly jumping ahead here. But the very end of the book of Ruth tells us about how Ruth and Boaz, after they are married, how they then become parents to um, a sequence of of, uh, men. It says that Salmon fathered Boaz, and Boaz fathered Obed, and Obed fathered Jesse, and Jesse fathered David. And you're beginning to see the way in which this marriage is not just about them experiencing the blessing of God for in the, the context of their relationship, but also how the blessing of God ripples out into history because here they become, they become ancestors to King David, who then, of course, is an, 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 the great ancestor to, ancestor to our Lord Jesus Christ. And I, that boggles my mind, that within the sovereignty of God, God created this marriage and ordained that this specific marriage should take place for the blessing of the world. This is God's way. He loves to create fruitfulness and multiplication, and marriage has that potential within it. And so what I'm saying right at the outset as we get into this subject of romantic love and marriage is that, of course, Christians have to recover an emphatically positive, hope-filled vision of what marriage is and what marriage can accomplish in a day and age in which marriage has been under constant barrage and assault and our confidence within marriage has been diminished. And I think this is especially important because you cannot understand the Bible without understanding God's intentions in and through marriage because the whole drama of salvation, God's way of saving us, is depicted as a great romance story. I think we have a problem, however. The question is how we can go about recovering marriage in a day and age in which we've largely forgotten how it can function well and healthily. And let me put it to you like this. I think it's possible to preserve the structure of a thing without knowing how to use it. You think about how in our day and age there are many ancient crafts that are in danger of being forgotten. 
You go on Wikipedia, there's a whole list, massive long list of crafts that have been identified from basket weaving to watchmaking to clay pipe making. We went uh, mudlarking with our kids down by the, on the banks of the River Thames not so long ago. And the remnants of Victorian clay pipes are all over the place. There were penny pipes that got thrown in off bridges into the river. And they're there all over the place. These crafts are disappearing, which means that you could walk into a perfectly preserved workshop in which one of these crafts is being, it w- was, uh, was, was carried out. But without the knowledge of how to use the tools and the machinery and the materials, you cannot produce anything good. And normally you're used to me referencing Lord of the Rings for my illustrations. I want to bring in Star Wars at this point um, <laughs> as an alternate. Um, in episode four, when Obi-Wan Kenobi meets Luke Skywalker, he gives... Luke Skywalker, uh, the lightsaber that once belonged to his father. And of course, Luke waves this thing around like you and I would wave a sword around. In other words, cluelessly. But because the Jedi art is a dying art, there's very few who know how to use this instrument of force and power. Oh, how I wish I had a lightsaber. (laughs) But in any case, here's my point. It's possible to preserve the thing and yet be clueless about how to put the thing to good use. If you had a samurai sword on the wall of your house, even if it was an ancient, beautiful, perfectly made one, doesn't mean that you have any clue how to use it should a burglar break in. And the same is true. You think about, let me just switch the analogy slightly. You think about all these church buildings around our nation that are, that are listed, that are being preserved. The structure is being preserved by government decree. Because they're they're wonderful examples of extraordinary architecture and craftsmanship and masonry and all the rest of it. But it doesn't mean that we know how to use them anymore. They're turned into flats or community centers or whatever else. And the one thing that they were built for, the honor and glory and worship of the living God, is the very thing that's not taking place within them. And I think marriage is a little bit like this. I'm trying to communicate to you the idea that it's possible to preserve the structures of marriage and yet to lose the craft knowledge and ancient wisdom about how to do this right. So there are plenty of people getting married today, but plenty of miserable marriages as well, in and outside of the church. And I want to ask the question how this story can help us. And I must say at the outset that on the surface, it doesn't help us very much. Because I would... um, It would be a mistake for you to go away and imagine that this is how you should go about finding a husband, ladies. Um, You know, just going and pulling the shoes off random guys or breaking into their bedrooms at night and just pulling back the duvet from their feet and then lying at the end of the bed and hoping for the best. That wouldn't work. So obviously on the surface level, um, there's the, the, the kind of specifics of how their courtship unfolds it's something of a mystery to us. I think it's lost through time. We don't really know why this was considered um, a kind of romantic act. or, a, a, You know, as I said last week, I'm scratching my head the same as you are. However, however, I also believe that under the surface, and by the way, on that point, it illustrates to us how Scripture can be descriptive of what happens in, has happened in history in real-life stories without being prescriptive in the sense that we have to do precisely as they did. Rather, what we have to do with stories like this is go beneath the surface and understand the principles and assumptions and worldview that shapes, that, that that is rooted in the biblical norms and therefore ought to feed and 
shape the way we think and feel and therefore also act. And the great question that I want to ask you then is this. How does this, this story challenge us in the 21st century and urge us to recover some of the ancient wisdom and biblical norms that can then fill and fuel healthy romance and marriage? And I want to show you a few ways in which I see this, this, this story, this account running directly counter to many of the assumptions that we sit with and have imbibed in our day and age, and therefore challenging us to repent of the way we think and do things. Let me show you what they are. The first is in the way that this story teaches and demonstrates the importance of sexual purity in our age of sexual incontinence and licentiousness and sensuality. We live in a day and age in which I think you can rightly describe this as the age of sensuality, the age of cheap sex, readily accessible pornography. And the great question you have to wrestle with as somebody who is sat in this and therefore perhaps to some degree unaware of the the way in which this has damaged us and the way in which this has changed the way we think and feel towards one another is members of the opposite sex. We need to wrestle with the question, what effect does this have on us? And what effect does this have on our capacity to engage in love and romance? And I would say without hesitation that I believe that the changes that we've seen societally in the Western world over the last 70 years and the increasing liberation of you know, societal rules and any, any kind of strictures around sexual behavior, that that has had a profoundly destabilizing effect upon relationships. Not unlike, I grew up in Winchester where there is a great ancient cathedral, a thousand or so years old, but it's built on a marsh. And so there was a great effort made um, many, many years ago to rebuild the foundations of that cathedral, lest it topple over. If you go and purchase a home, one of the things that you'll want to do is, is conduct a survey so that a surveyor will go in and look at the structure and the soundness of that home so that there are no ugly surprises like timber that's riddled with, with, uh, with woodworm or some kind of instability in the foundations. If you purchase a car, it can look beautiful on the outside, but the chassis could be rusted through. What I'm trying to say to you is I think that in a sense, the, the sexual... Um, The sexualization of the day and age in which we live is like a rot in the foundations or like a rust in the chassis of the structures of our ability to do relationships well. So that even if things look okay on the surface, there is immense damage that's done to our ability to conduct ourselves with dignity and honor towards one another and love each other in a pure and holy way. Why is that? Well, it's because... Sex created by God was designed by God for various purposes. One was it was designed to drive single people towards covenant love and marriage so that they could be together sexually. Sex, in other words, encourages and drives people towards commitment. It joins souls, the Bible tells us. 
It has a potency to bind your soul to another so that when you sleep with someone, you become one flesh with them, Scripture tells you. That there's a part of your soul that's given to them and a part of theirs that you take to yourself. And therefore, sex also is regarded in Scripture as the covenant act that seals the vows that you say to one another verbally. And therefore, to keep having sex throughout marriage is a way of sealing the covenant. There's no need to go and reiterate your vows publicly as so many people do in that cheesy way, you know, it, booking out a lovely venue in their 60s and everyone shows up for them to say their vows again. No, no, the vows were said once and for all when they got married. Sex is the reinstitution of that covenant again and again and no one wants to be present for that, okay? You get on with that in secret, please. That's what it's given for. Now, and therefore my point is this, that the abuse of sex and of our sexual um, capacities and the encouragement of lust and the encouragement of sexual acts outside of marriage has had a profoundly destabilizing effect upon our ability to have stable, loving relationships, covenant relationships, marriage relationships. And I could go on all day on this one, but I just want to give you a few brief reasons why I think this is true. One, it allows gratification without commitment which of course skews towards men because men are very typically more willing to take without giving. And so they will take whatever they can sexually without offering commitment. Another reason is it creates a consumeristic mindset around these issues so that I am the consumer is it when it comes to a romantic relationship and I'm shopping around for the best possible sexual partner. Another thing is what it does is it induces guilt and shame into the relationship that actually has the effect of eroding the relationship before the covenant has ever been established. It's an extraordinary thing, but as soon as couples engage in a relationship sexually, there's a very strong likelihood that that relationship is going to, to experience the effects of guilt and shame that will actually destabilize it if they, it is not accompanied by covenant promises. Another reason is that it prevents true intimacy because people are too quick to move ahead with the thrill of physical intimacy without having established anything like a, a comparable phys, uh, emotional and relational intimacy to, as a foundation to the relationship and therefore never really go in, into the work to build that. Another reason is that it creates deep insecurity because, look, the, the the logical thing here is if you give yourself to someone sexually and yet they're not willing to make a commitment to you in marriage, you're saying, I'm giving my all to you. I'm in my most vulnerable state to you and yet you still don't want me. You're not willing to commit to me. So it creates that insecurity. I think it also sows the seeds of long-term discontent because when people are married and there can be something of... Um, you know, the realities of life set in and the sexual experience within marriage has to be rekindled again and again at risk of becoming monotonous. It's possible to then compare that with the thrill of illicit sex before marriage and understand that the, the kind of ecstasy of what was, what was illegitimate but also forgetting, of course, the bitterness of the morning after, that skews your ability to treasure what you have within marriage. I think it also destabilizes trust because if you 
look at the person you're with and say, well, you were willing to sleep with me when we were not married, then obviously your mind will run away with you and think, well, that presumably means you'd be willing to sleep with someone else that you're not married to. And I think also, in addition to that, it greatly increases the likelihood of adultery and cheating because once you have bashed down those walls, those protective structures, and trodden over your conscience that tells you this is wrong, it's so much easier to keep doing that again and again and again. I want to ask with you the question, why is sexual holiness so so important? Just notice with me, how this is something that's just there, woven into the story of this couple. In some ways, in a kind of strange, ancient way, there's something, something sexual and steamy about this scene. They're in, alone in the dark. Boaz is merry, having had a little bit too much to drink, and he's there with a single woman at the foot of his bed. And instead of abusing her and taking advantage of her, they immediately spring into action to move towards marriage to create the structure within which they can fulfill their sexual desires towards one another. Immediately they do that. John Piper in his book on Ruth expresses it like this. He says, the stars are beautiful overhead. It's midnight. He desires her. She desires him. They are alone. She is under his cloak and he stops it for the sake of righteousness and does not touch her. What a man, what a woman. The mood of life today is, if it feels good, do it, and away with guilt-producing puritanical principles of chastity and faithfulness. But I say to you who are unmarried, if the stars are shining in their beauty, and your blood is thudding like a hammer, and you are safe in the privacy of your place, stop. For the sake of righteousness, let the morning dawn on your purity. When the Apostle Paul is taking up this theme of sexual purity in his letter to the Corinthian church, a city that was as bad, if not worse, than modern-day London in this regard. He really roots this exaltation towards sexual chastity and faithfulness within the need to honor in three directions. There's first the need to honor the other person. So he says in 1 Corinthians 6, verse 16, Don't you know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it's written, the two will become one flesh. And he's pulling on that ancient truth that's there right at the beginning of the Bible, that sexual relationships join you soul to soul. There's a kind of soul tie that takes place. And therefore, to take a piece of another person that you are not willing to commit to in covenant love is a dishonoring of the other person. You are causing unknown damage to them and to yourself. So it's dis- it's, it's a w- seeking sexual purity is a way of wanting to honor the other person. It's also a way of wanting to honor yourself. Paul says in a fascinating verse, he says, flees from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. In other words, it's a form of self-harm. Giving yourself away in this way physically to someone who does not offer you total, absolute covenant faithfulness and commitment. And then it is a way of wanting to honor God himself. 
He says, don't you know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. You're not your own. If you've become a follower of Jesus, His Spirit has come to take residence in you. He's made you a, a temple, a walking temple of His presence. And a temple is, not, is, is to be sanctified rather than to be abased. And therefore, it is a way of honoring God by maintaining our sexual purity and holiness in this area. I want to remind you, by the way, that when Paul wrote these, these challenges to that church in Corinth, he was writing to a church full of people like us who've made all kinds of mistakes, who have pasts that are regrettable, things that you wish you could undo. And he has said to them a little earlier in this chapter, he says, when he's speaking about sexual sin, he says, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. You are washed at the effects of that, that, that dirtiness and defilement that you feel from a, from a past that's full of shame that can be taken off of you. You were sanctified, which is to say that God has now pulled you and set you apart for himself to make you his own. You were justified so that the, the wrongs that you have committed can never be held against you. And Christian, I want to encourage you, that is your hope. As long as you sit in your shame and sense of defeat, sense of failure, you're doomed to repeat those behaviors. But when you understand who you are and what Christ has done for you and the reality of his forgiveness and of his recovering grace, there's hope that you can walk in a new way. You can walk in the light and not in the dark. Ruth and Boaz demonstrate to us the necessity and importance of purity, of not taking advantage of one another for our own gratification outside of marriage. Another principle that we see here is the principle of commitment, which again runs counter to our age because we're living in the age of, of fear and of self-protection. Now, I think arguably fear is the dominant force that opposes marriage in our day and age and that causes people to withhold with kind of withhold that commitment and giving that commitment to another. And I think there are numerous reasons for this and numerous ways in which fear sort of manifests itself in our lives that cause us to hesitate. One is because of the widespread destructive effects that we've seen of divorce. It may have touched you very personally, and even if it hasn't, you know all around you that divorce is everywhere. And what that does is it creates a fear of commitment. I can't commit because I can't guarantee that it will work. And I don't want that damage to myself or to potential future children. We're also in an age of just selfish consumerism and the using of one another when it comes to sex. It seems to me that it is just the Western capitalism consumeristic market forces applied to sex that explains the way that we behave. And of course, if you're living in a world in which everyone's approaching this very selfishly, 
then that will bring out of your heart the fear of rejection. How can I commit to another when they might not want me? I might not be the product that they would choose among a whole range of possible options. Fear. I think there's also fear because we're living in a world that's constantly bombarded with sexual imagery and messaging and the, the distortions that come around our ideas of perfection and how that constantly also feeds the lusts that are latent within us so that it becomes a hungry monster constantly wanting more and more. And what this does is it creates the fear of settling because consciously or unconsciously, people are unwilling to commit to one another because they keep thinking, well, I could find a better model. All this fear preventing and destabilizing and handicapping our ability to make permanent commitments to one another in love. And the result is that marriage itself has, is growing increasingly rare, that it's also um, growing more delayed, that people are marri- marrying later and later in life, and procrastinating on this until they really have run out of options. And then also, the increase, and I think this is deeply ironic in one sense, is it leading to increased loneliness and long-term singleness and childlessness. And I say it's ironic because we're supposed to live in a sexually liberated age. Liberty is the language of freedom, and yet people are miserable. Is that freedom? You end up in your mid to late 30s or 40s not able to find a worthy person How can we cover, recover then love that commits? Well, friends, it takes a measure of risk and courage. When you see this romance I'm playing, between, uh, playing out between these two individuals, Ruth approaches Boaz with an immense degree of courage because she exposes herself to rejection. When she takes that step enters into his presence, uncovers his feet, and and invites him to spread his wings over her, saying, you are a redeemer, which was no less, in a sense, than an invitation to to marry her. It's a form of proposal, I suppose. And so she risks everything in this moment of courageous vulnerability, which is the opposite to the commitment phobia we see in our day and age. And you see the corresponding courage and risk coming from Boaz, how he acts so decisively and so quickly. What an absolute contrast to the modern man, right? Who dithers and delays and sits there in uncertainty and anxiety and all kinds of phobia. What an absolute contrast to that. And I I should underline, by the way, that they weren't entering into this blindly. They, were, they had an opportunity to observe one another's character at a distance, which is deep, a very helpful way of approaching marriage. They could see one another in the context of a non-romantic settings. This was not, this was not the, the, the risk of you know, meeting up with a blind date off a dating app, because they have observed one another, and they both have admired one, another, one another's worthiness and, and character, which is the deepest form of attraction that draws them to one another. So it's less of a risk than it actually appears. 
But when it comes to the moment, the opportunity, they say yes. And they move with rapidity and speed and decisiveness into the state of marriage. I am a strong advocate for speediness with these things. Tempered by wisdom and the voice of many other people, I recognize that there is a lot of stupidity that enters into romance when you head over heels with someone. But I also recognize that the way our culture does it is so entirely wrong. And the challenge is to move intentionally and to pursue a marriage relationship, to risk rejection, and to commit early, and especially a word there to the men. And this brings me on to what I think is probably the most controversial aspect. So it's been easy breezy from here, but I want to now get to what I think is the most controversial aspect of this passage and of what is rooted in biblical norms here that challenges us. And it is the reality of what can be described as complementarity, which I'll explain in a second, but living in an age such as ours of the blurring of distinctions between men and women. Now, what do I mean by this word complementarity? Complementarianism or complementarity is a doctrine that states that men and women are created to be of equal worth, but have different roles. That there are God-given differences between us that govern some of the ways that we act and interact with one another. And so, on the one hand, there's a kind of radical vision of equality that goes against all the demeaning of women that we've seen through history because the scriptures tell us quite emphatically that God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. There is never a question about the the dignity and equal worth of men and women in scripture, only in our abuse of the norms that scripture lays out. But on the other hand, there is a belief in the God-given difference between men and women. And particularly as it's worked out in the context of marriage and then a family and the family structures, which the church resembles also, by the way, with, with men called to lead their homes and women called to come alongside in strong support of their husband's spiritual leadership. Now, where do we see this in this story? We see it working on two levels. And the one is the kind of structural societal levels that are at work in, just assumed, in the background of the story. And the other is in the heart interactions and posture of this man and this woman and how they then interact relationally to one another. I want to just deal with those in in turn. Beginning with the structural societal realities of what's going on here. These differences between men and women and the, the obligations that are upon them to interact in ways according to their sex are built into the fabric of this ancient society and and biblical society. And you can see this just, by the way, in the assumptions that have been at, work, at play until this moment. That Ruth is, in a sense, um, kind of spinning out in, in an orbit that's out of control when she is, she's, she's a widow without protection, not being in a household. And Naomi wants her to be settled within the context of a household. And that has to do with the way that the, the ancient world was structured around the household with the husband giving leadership and protection to the wife and therefore then working together as a team to build this economic unit that was a home. I recognize that our world has changed in many regards. But that's what they're built into the fabric of what's taking place here. But it's also there particularly in this language that keeps coming through about Boaz as a potential redeemer for Ruth. Sometimes it's translated a kinsman redeemer. 
And I know that this was puzzling to you and I because we have no modern equivalent to anything that's taking place here. But let me explain to you what's going on. This is what Naomi has observed in chapter 2, verse 20 about this, this relative, Boaz. She said to her daughter-in-law, Ruth, May he be blessed by the Lord, whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. The man is a close relative of ours, one of our redeemers. And so when Ruth approaches him, she says, Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. And then he resolves, I will redeem you. But there's another one closer, another kinsman redeemer who is actually first in line to be your kinsman redeemer, but if he won't do it, then I will. And I want to just briefly explain to you what this means. A redeemer was a male relative upon whom obligations would fall in a numerous circumstances. The obligation might fall on him in the context of a woman becoming a widow, And therefore, the the obligation comes on the, the kinsman redeemer to marry the widow so that he can bear children for the dead man, which mattered in a society where so much was around kinship and family and clan and tribe and the inheritance that passed down from generation to generation, both physical inheritance and spiritual. Marry the widow. And if he wouldn't do it, if he refused, there was enormous shame that would come on his head. It's an obligation to do it. Another way in which this expresses itself was in the context of um, freeing a relative from debt. A kinsman redeemer might come in and redeem. There would be an obligation on this man to purchase someone out of debt if they found themselves in debt and then had to work in a situation of what was a kind of bond servant or slavery to another because of their debt. And the kinsman redeemer would come in in this financial struggle and redeem them from their financial woes. And the third way in which the Redeemer would function was in vengeance. They had no police. They had no standing army. So if, if you suffered a great crime, and particularly if someone in your family potentially was murdered, a male relative, the nearest kinsman Redeemer, the duty would fall on him to act as the bounty hunter and to go in search of the criminal and call him to justice. You see all these interactions. There's this fatherly duty to bear offspring. There's this financial duty. And there's this protective duty of vengeance in the situation of wrongdoing and crime. And all of this fell on these male relatives' heads when they became kinsmen redeemers in these sorts of circumstances. And so Ruth and Boaz Boaz and Naomi found themselves in a situation where the men in their life have died, and it defaults to the nearest male relatives to become the kinsmen redeemers to help them in the first two categories, to marry, to bear offspring, and also to redeem them from their financial mess. And then to offer protection. And I know that Look, when I'm describing this ancient society that's so foreign to us, I mean, it's so unbelievably different, isn't it? That some of you are thinking, well, that's just the whole problem, isn't it? The world has changed. And good riddance to the patriarchy that existed then. We're no longer under these obligations. They no longer exist. And so we, we, have, we can do things differently. And I, I understand that. I recognize the world has changed. But I want to just challenge you on this point for a second. I think it's very easy to criticize ancient society as woefully patriarchal when we're sitting here in a position of unmatched privilege and wealth that's never existed in the history of the world. 
And what this privilege and wealth has allowed is allowed us to outsource many of the duties that fell on men and women in the ancient world, to kind of professionalize these duties and outsource them to others in ways that were not possible and cannot even be conceived of in a world of such hand-to-mouth existence. And I give you examples of this outsourcing. We can outsource manual work so that the man no longer has to go out and labor in in the fields to create a living for his family. And men and women these days both have equally soft hands because we all sit at desks doing knowledge work by and large. And you think that's a position of privilege in which we we kind of distance ourselves from that ancient model. But of course, we can only do that because our world is so wealthy and has changed so radically. We outsource our work. Another thing we do is we outsource protection. We now employ or we pay taxes for police, for lawyers, for judges, and for an army. And there has not been any real prospect of of conflict reaching our shores for for many decades now. And so, therefore, no obligation upon men to stand up and be protectors. It's shocking, isn't it, to us that there is a conflict breaking out many countries away within our continent. Because it's so foreign to us. And so there's no obligation upon men as was there in the ancient world to risk their lives and and offer protection for the sake of their loved ones in the way that was true of a man like Boaz. Another thing we've outsourced in our moment of privilege is we've outsourced pregnancy and motherhood. Because as the world gets wealthier, wherever there's wealth, the middle and upper classes have fewer and fewer children so that sustaining the population falls on poorer people. And we've outsourced schooling and childcare because now we can pay for people to take care of our children and take care of the home and all those kinds of things in a way that just wasn't true then. And so what I'm trying to do, besides, you know, causing widespread offense, all I'm trying to do... (laughs) What I'm trying to help you to do is to say, listen, we've absorbed these these narratives. The patriarchy is evil, all that kind of stuff, without any sympathy for context and understanding. Yes, the, the patriarchy was open to profound abuse because sin distorts everything, just as it distorts our so called equal society today. Sin is still just as rife and at work, and people are just as abusive of each other, using each other, if not more so. Isn't that true? So please, let's not label things in this simplistic way. The patriarchal system that existed then was not inherently evil. It existed for the protection and flourishing of everyone who was a part of it. And more than that, I think we've got to acknowledge that we can only make these kinds of claims and judgments from the position of unique privilege that we exist in in our day and age. And so my challenge and my pushback is this. Does our modern day privilege that exists for this moment in history obliterate universal norms that have existed all through history and establish a new norm as the right way of doing things? Is that a given? And also, isn't it the case that ancient and inbuilt roles and responsibilities lie dormant and unused within us? 
that there's something about the way the ancient world is structured that resonates with you as men. So as I'm describing Boaz's duties and responsibilities, there's a part of you that stands more upright and says, I wish I had such a cause to give my life for. And there's a part of you that, under, that sees Boaz's posture towards Ruth, if you're a woman, there's part of you that resonates with this and longs for men as noble and worthy and godly as Boaz to be in your life. Now, I told you it existed at that societal and structural level. I also think, and this is where I'm bringing things to a close, it also exists at the heart and posture level. Their beliefs influence how they relate to and honor each other. So their their understandings of their differences govern how they relate to each other in ways that are beautiful and worthy of imitation. First, you look at Ruth and how she initiates in this relationship towards Boaz, by the way, which just immediately subverts our assumptions, doesn't it? She's the one who approaches him, and uh, she does so in this way in which she, she, go, she, she dresses nicely, she smells great, and then she uncovers his feet, and then she says to him, come and redeem me. And it reminds me a little bit of, of my courtship. You know, I, after a serendipitous meeting with my wife, um, somehow she showed up at my church three times in one week, and uh, therefore, you know, without using so many words, was saying, spread your wings over me and redeem me. So that's how I understood it, at least. Um, that was certainly the way I read it. And um, the rest is history. So I'm not, you know, this is Ruth. But look at how she does it. How, first of all, she does this in a uniquely feminine way. There are differences between us, aren't there? And the fact that she beautifies herself and, and is fragrant and, and desirable is a uniquely feminine way in which she approaches him. The fact also that she adopts the posture of respect by uncovering his feet and lying at his feet is saying, I want to follow your leadership. And there is, in a sense, the posture of respect. Even as she's initiating, she's initiating, she's calling the man to lead. And also there's a sense in which the invitation is for him to step up and assume his male responsibility. She says, redeem me, because you're in the position of responsibility in which you must lead and redeem me. It's not the other way around. And therefore, in the whole way in which Ruth conducts herself, according to these, this, 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 this knowledge, this wisdom, this reality of the difference between man and woman that's, that's built into the way she sees herself, never once does she emasculate Boaz or belittle him or disrespect him or, 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 or seek to, um, to subvert or bypass these, these God-given differences. And the, just a word here, by the way, one of the most important ways that you can see men rise to the stature that you see in men like this in Scripture and which they so rarely rise to in our day and age is to offer them respect even if they're not worthy of it. it has a profound nourishing effect on the masculine heart. Look at Ruth's posture. Then look at Boaz's posture. He does not take advantage of her. So in this apparently evil, toxic, patriarchal age, he does the very thing that almost that very few men today do, which is treat her with dignity and respect. He doesn't take advantage of her sexually. On the contrary, he doesn't treat her in a high-handed or entitled way. As she asks him to redeem her, his response is, may you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter. You have made this last kindness greater than the first and that you've not gone after young men, whether poor or rich. He is grateful to her. He treats her with respect as a woman who has agency in this situation. 
And I admire him for the way he is so honoring of her. The only thing that's, that's toxic, let me remind you, is sin. It's not the structures itself. And what it rather does is it elicits within him the opportunity to step up and take responsibility as he was called and designed by God to do. And he does. Why, friends, is there some part of our hearts that resonates with the beauty of this story? And I want to close by suggesting two reasons. The first is because I think men and women are wired by God to resonate with the things that you're seeing taking place in this story. And yes, the world has changed, but we recognize in other parts of our lives that the changing of the world does not necessarily change who we are as humans. So just the fact that we can relate to each other through screens online does not make it better than being together in person. The modern world hasn't changed our need for relationship. The fact that you can earn a good living, sat on your bottom all day, perhaps in your pajamas on the couch, does not deny your need to, to, get, to be physical and to give your body physical work to do, even if it's non-productive work like lifting weights in a gym. And therefore, just because the world has changed does not change who you are as a human. And the world may have changed so that we have a more equal society in which so many of the structures of ancient society no longer pertain. But you're still a man. You're still a woman. There's still part of you that resonates with the realities that you see in Scripture. That's my first reason. My second is this. Because all of this is really preaching to us the beauty and the, and the glory of our salvation story. We are Ruth and Christ is Boaz who comes in to treat us with the dignity of purity and to purify us, as it says in Ephesians 5. He also commits to us in covenant love, which is the whole foundation of our salvation, that he commits to us and says, I will never let you go. And ultimately, friends, he takes responsibility to be our leader, to be our head, by dying on the cross for our sins, redeeming us by his blood, becoming our kinsman redeemer. So when you're seeing something in the story that, that echoes and resonates with your heart, really it's because all of God's creation is preaching the gospel of the blessed son who has died for your sins.